0: Following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Alrighty, so um, our sermon today is in the series, um, What's Keeping My Faith? Um, And uh, today, apparently, Roy Kent is going to be involved. So, Corey, um, uh, we do have uh, you on seven-second delay, by the way. hear me okay? Okay, good. So, when Scott announced a while back that Artisan would be running a series about what's saving my faith, um, I immediately got excited. I knew what I wanted to contribute. Uh, For some, the question of what's saving my faith may be a difficult one to answer, uh, but I knew right away art, specifically film, television, books, podcasts and even more specifically, the way in which Jesus reveals himself, and sometimes the most unlikely unlikely ways and the most unexpected places. I started to think about some pieces in media that had the most impact on me, and invariably the ones that jumped out all possessed the core tenets that I believe Artisan was based upon, but even more importantly, some of the core tenets that Jesus espoused. Things like empathy, compassion, social justice, active lear- listening, and yes, faith. I'll get to these examples momentarily. There is a natural tendency among humans to ascribe meaning to things that aren't actually there. Confirmation bias is absolutely a thing that exists. I say this because in one of these upcoming examples, your reaction might be, okay, Corey's officially seen too many movies, which fair, you're not wrong. There's also one that I'm not going to lie is emotionally charged. However, I think about that quote from Rachel Held Evans in her fantastic book, A Year of Biblical Womanhood, when she spoke about the Bible and said, there are times when the most instructive question to bring to the text is not, what does it say, but what am I looking for? I think that applies to art as well. It's impossible to encounter Jesus if you never seek him out. Now, I could sit here and wax poetic all day about the various films and television shows and books and podcasts where I've encountered Jesus. But for the sake of avoiding someone pulling me off the stage with a giant hook, I've limited it to seven. And in preparing it, was important for me that these examples not come off like I'm reading a Rotten Tomatoes review, so I'm prefacing each example with a brief passage from the Bible that exemplifies and reflects the example. And so, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, Mark chapter 9, verse 24. Searching for Sunday by Rachel Held Evans. Any avid reader knows about that special moment. You're reading book after book after book when suddenly you read something you feel in your soul like the author was speaking directly to you. That's only happened two times in my life. The first time was when I read the books of Pat Conroy. The second was this year when I started reading Rachel Held Held Evans. In her book, Searching for Sunday, she talks about how growing up in the evangelical church, she went from certainty to asking questions, to doubt, to more questions, to leaving the church for childhood, to struggling to find a new one. I don't know as I've ever read someone as open and honest about her doubts when it comes to faith. I say it felt like she spoke directly to me because she voiced a lot of things I struggled with growing up as a Catholic. No man can come to the Father except through me. Well, where does that leave the Jews or the Muslims? Where does it leave the people who have never been ex- exposed to Christianity? What about some of the stuff in Leviticus? What about Cain and Abel? Can that be true? What about all the people who supposed to live for hundreds of years in the Bible? What about, what about, what about? And then lo and behold she touched on the big one, the one a lot of us keep hidden in the locked room at the back of our minds and hearts. What if we just made all this stuff up because we're afraid of death? Even now that's hard for me to say out loud 12-year-old Corey is screaming inside. I read that and I was like, oh, she said the quiet part out loud. But I also felt suddenly very seen. I wanted to scream, me too. I didn't feel alone. And as I read on, I saw that a lot of people felt the same way I did. Rachel Held Evans was someone who wrestled with with doubt a lot, but she made me feel like it was okay to do that. No one in my spiritual life had ever done that before. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. Rachel Held Evans is saving my faith. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Ted Lasso, it's a show that if you're in the know, never fails to bring a smile to your face. An American football college coach somehow is unexpectedly recruited to become the manager of the fictional English Premier League soccer team, AFC Richmond. Hilarity and humanity ensues. In a world full of cynicism, this is a show that is relentlessly optimistic, positive, empathetic, and compassionate. And God knows we all need that right now. And in season two, episode eight, I saw one of the most beautiful examples of compassion ever. Two of the main characters on the show are Jamie Tart and Roy Kent. Jamie is talented, arrogant, cocky, selfish, and self-obsessed. Roy is brash, gruff, foul-mouthed, stubborn, cantankerous, old-school, reserved, and volatile. They hate each other. After a brutal crushing loss to West Ham, Jamie's father enters the locker room and proceeds to bully and belittle him. When Jamie's father is forcibly escorted out, Jamie stands there alone, bereft and hurting. The room is dead silent. Across the room stands Roy. He stares across the room and suddenly sees not his nemesis, not his enemy, not an entitled brat, but a fellow human being in pain. And in that moment, a truly miraculous thing happens. This emotionally stunted man does something remarkable. Roy speaks no words. He doesn't hesitate. He merely strides across the room and embraces Jamie while he sobs. Roy mourns as Jamie mourns. Roy Kent is saving my faith. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. Arrival. Arrival is a special film to me One of the main themes poses the question Knowing that a relationship with a loved one ultimately ends in death Sometimes horrifically, tragically, and far too early Would you still choose to have that relationship? And the answer is yes, because despite the ultimate outcome The joy, the laughter, the companionship, the love all make it worth it I saw this film a few months after my mom passed away from ovarian cancer So it hit a little differently for me but I want to talk about the other main theme, language, or more specifically, communication. In the film, renowned linguist Dr. Louise Banks is invited to be on the front lines of first contact when an alien race sets down in 12 different spots across the globe. What follows is a complex and poignant examination of how language shapes and molds us for better and for worse. Language can be abstract, and what one group perceives as the word tool, another can interpret as weapon. Words can cut to the quick, or build the foundation of something beautiful and precious. In fact, the potentially volatile nature of miscommunication pushes the entire world to the brink of violent conflict. It is in this moment that Louise rises to the occasion and realizes that the aliens' language is in fact a gift. Learning their language alters humans' perceptions of linear time, resulting in a level of empathy across cultures that fundamentally changes the future of humanity for the better. Louise knew that language has the power of life and death, and her love of language bore beautiful fruit. Like Louise, Jesus knows the power of language. The scribes, the Pharisees, even lay people were oftentimes so caught up in the letter of the law, the specifics of the language, they couldn't see how limiting and in some cases how painful that narrow interpretation was. Jesus saw things differently. He perceived things differently. He saw language as a gift a tool to change hearts and minds for the better. Dr. Louise Banks is saving my faith. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not suff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 3 and 4. Hot fuzz. In 2007... I told you we'd get there. Edgar Wright released the action comedy send-up Hot Fuzz, the second film in his Three Flavors Cornetto trilogy. In it, a by-the-book cop, at least seemingly, named Nicholas Angel is so good at his job in London, he's making everyone else look bad. Consequently, he's promoted to sergeant, but relegated to a small town in Sandford, Gloucestershire, quaint place obsessed with winning the Village of the Year prize. Wright made this movie in response to the British gangster films of the early 2000s, believing Britain, unlike the numerous examples in America, had never gotten a proper copper film. I told you we'd get to the one where you'd think Corey officially has seen too many movies, but stay with me. Now, I fully understand that given the current social climate, where too often people of color are abused, attacked, and sometimes shot with impunity by police officers, The concept of a movie that presents a white cop as a hero hits a little differently in 2023 than it does in 2007. Again, stay with me. One of the things I fully believe about film and television is that our relationship to it and what it can mean and signify can evolve over time. As the years pass, we gain more life experiences. Hopefully, we gain more wisdom. The world itself also changes. Things don't stay static. Also, what I'm about to say owes a lot to a YouTuber named Mikey Newman, who presents excellent nuanced video essays that you should all watch, but this is a movie that deals with police officers who struggle against what they have been taught by media in an effort to do actual police work, settle their disputes without killing people, do the most good and cause the least amount of harm, and let the small stuff go. This movie openly acknowledges how media warps our idea of the people sworn to protect us and pushes back against the glorification of violence. This is a movie where Nicholas Angel fights against trusted public servants who murder unarmed people regularly. In fact, it implies a deeper systematic issue because the people in power in Sanford are protecting the people committing these crimes for that oldie but goodie, the greater good those same people in power justify why those people were killed for some imaginary or manufactured reason. Is this starting to sound familiar? In a free society, we trust people in leadership and authoritative roles to be beyond reproach and and do the right thing. We are fallible creatures. We need checks and balances. Which brings me back to Nick. He glorifies paperwork and due diligence before passing judgment. Police work is supposed to be hard and boring because that's what peace looks like. His most important weapon isn't his sidearm, it's his notebook, which is what he uses to gather facts and data while actively listening. Even when violence does ensue, this is an action film after all, it's all done to disarm or incapacitate, not kill. Nick believes in the words of Isaiah. He is not faltered or discouraged. He works to bring forth justice upon earth. Nick doesn't just say he's a good cop. He is a good cop. Nicholas Angel is saving my faith. (sighs) To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Silence. I grew up in a Christian home where very early on, it was clear the best example of Christ's love on earth was my mom. I'm sure that's not an uncommon experience for lots of Christians, probably for many people in this room. She was a staunch but empathetic and kind Catholic who brooked no nonsense when it came to her faith. Mom didn't suffer any fools. So you best believe at the age of nine, when August 12, 1988 rolled around, and Morton Scorsese released The Last Temptation of Christ in the theaters, my mom had some strong opinions, none of them positive. And if you thought releasing Goodfellas two years later would have brought her around, you'd be wrong. <laughs> I sincerely wish my mother had lived to see Scorsese's silence Because I feel like she would have forgiven Marty It's one of those movie moments I really, really wanted to share with her In the film, two Portuguese Jesuit priests, and Francisco Set off to find their mentor in 16th century Japan Who supposedly recanted his faith During this time, Christianity was banned And those who practiced it were subject to torture and death Many were forced to step on fumayé, depictions of Jesus, in order to renounce their religion. The film is a harrowing, beautiful, melancholy, complex examination of faith and sacrifice. It asks the question, is it self-centered to recant when doing so will end others' suffering? Is martyrdom and the judgment of the church more important than the physical safety of your fellow followers in Christ? Or maybe more importantly, what does loving your neighbor in this real, tangible moment mean? What does it look like? It's something that Sebastiao is forced to confront directly. I think this is a movie that in some ways was a representation of Scorsese's struggles with his own faith, and more than once, Sebastiao asked three questions I find myself asking myself in the years since. What have I done for Christ? What am I doing for Christ? What will I do for Christ? Martin Scorsese is saving my faith. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their ears, see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. ACTS CHAPTER twenty eight, verse twenty seven. The witch trials of JK Rowling When someone says the name J.K. Rowling, there's probably a lot of words that spring to mind depending on who you ask. There's inspirational, nostalgia, fondness, gratitude, creativity. There's also hurt, betrayal, confusion, bigot. Before I get too much farther into this section, I want to say something. I really struggled whether or not to include this podcast as an example of what's saving my faith. My concern was that as someone who is admittedly not as well versed in this subject as I'd like to be and not even a member of the LGBTQIA community, I'd unintentionally say the wrong thing out of ignorance and hurt someone. To some degree I think the tendency is for more and more of us to be consequentialists. Intentions don't matter. I don't necessarily ascribe to the idea. Intentions have to matter at some level. And yet I'm also cognizant of the fact that if someone says something and the consequence is that that someone gets killed The person is still dead, regardless of your intentions. But then I remembered two things. One is that any trepidation, fear, or anxiety I have pales in comparison to what trans men, trans women, and trans children have to face on any given day. And the second was that I remembered the church I call home, this church, filled with people with empathy, compassion, acceptance, and forgiveness. Just by the nature of being online, I had heard about this podcast through the internet grapevine and finally decided to check it out. Honestly, I approached it more out of curiosity than anything else. I wanted to see if this would be a factual, unbiased, nuanced examination of the fracturization between J.K. Rowling and her fans. I didn't want this to be another bad faith argument dressed up in the guise of I'm just asking questions. I was skeptical. I mean, look at the title, for goodness sake. The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. It's provocative, to say the least. By the way, side note, (laughs) turns out it was just witty and had big dad joke energy. The podcast itself, in my opinion, turned out to be unbiased, informative, enlightening, and balanced. It began with the creation of Rowling's books, the moral panic that arose at the time, particularly in America, about whether or not they should be allowed in schools, which just happened to coincide with a rise in Internet usage. The podcast explored the rise of online fandom, the expansion of places like Tumblr and 4chan, and so much more. It examined the landmark book ban case in Crawford County, Arkansas, that dealt with if Harry Potter books should be openly displayed in schools, and included interviews with lawyers on both sides. The podcast also contained interviews with popular trans activists like Natalie Wynn, trans doctors, a particularly beautiful talk with a trans teenager named Noah, and of course, J.K. Rowling. The host of the podcast, Megan Phelps Roper, approached this entire endeavor from a place of compassion and empathy, yet she also took the accusations of bigotry seriously because she herself was a notorious bigot for years as a former member of the Westboro Baptist Church. You know, the ones that picketed soldiers' funerals screaming that God hates gays. That was quite the plot twist for me when that bombshell dropped. So from personal experience, she had to wrestle with some truly awful questions. How could she be so certain for so long that she was in the right and yet be so wrong? Or even scarier, how could she even trust her own mind ever again? What a terrifying place to be in. And her path forward? Well, I think her words say it best. Ever since then, I've been so cautious, so careful in trying to discern what is true, what is right, what is good. I try to stay away from certainty, to remember that at any given moment, I'm only seeing a tiny fraction of the world. I tell myself to embrace humility. One of the ways I do this is by listening, really listening to people and where they're coming from. I try to understand them and their experiences and their values and how they've come to the positions that they have. I didn't realize when I started listening what a roller coaster I was getting on. I'd listen to one episode and feel one way and listen to another episode and feel another way. I was open to new concepts, new people, new ideas, new terminology. And when the dust settled, I was left not with certainty, but with more questions, which in the final analysis is probably the point. I walked away from the podcast with two beliefs. Note I say beliefs and not certainties because as the podcast discusses, it is in the moment where we are most certain that we should be questioning ourselves. It is in that moment when we speak from a place of righteousness that we should ask ourselves, is it righteous or just another dopamine hit? The first was that Twitter, or any social media platform for that matter, is not the place to have a nuanced and rational conversation about a complex, complicated, emotionally charged topic. In other breaking news, water is wet, the sky is blue, and Star Wars fans have thoughts on The Last Jedi. The second is that we must continue to engage in the conversation. Why? Because Jesus never ran away from the conversation. Loving your enemies is hard. It's meant to be. That's the point. And I'm not often one for absolutes, but loving your enemies has to mean something. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. Whether it was the Pharisees, the tax collectors, fishermen, or shepherds, Jesus knew that it was in the dialogue that real change happened. Dialogue to topple empires, dialogue to change hearts, dialogue to change minds. Megan Phelps Roper is saving my faith. Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant shall be healed. Matthew chapter 8, verse 8. Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth. As a child, like many of you, I'm sure I had a strict bedtime. 8.30 was the cutoff. So it was kind of weird to me at age eight during Lent when my mom one day just said, hey, you're going to stay up until 10.30 for the next couple nights. Immediately I was like, cool, are they bringing back The Muppet Show? (laughs) My mom calmly informed me that sadly the idiots at the TV station had not in fact decided to reverse their heinous decision from six years previous. Instead she said, no, there's a miniseries your father and I want you to watch. It's called Jesus of Nazareth. Eight-year-old me thought, well, it's not Pigs in Space or Statler and Waldorf making fun of everyone from cheap seats, but it's an opportunity to stay up past my bedtime. I'm in. And that's how I got to watch my favorite visual story of Jesus for the first time. It's an excellent miniseries with a who's who of stars, everyone from James Earl Jones to Anne Bancroft to Laurence Olivier. And it's all led by a phenomenal performance from Robert Powell. I was captivated, absolutely enthralled, I'd been to Sunday school, gone to Mass, given up cookies for Lent, heard every year about the true meaning of Christmas, but Jesus, to some degree, was always an idea rather than a reality. I mean, a man who was the son of God that came back from the dead is something this 44-year-old man still wrestles with daily. It's no surprise my 8-year-old self couldn't fully get the concept. But this, this was something different, something special. And my favorite thing in the whole miniseries also just happens to be my favorite story in the Bible, and that's the story of Jesus and the Centurion, played in the miniseries by Oscar winner Ernest Borgnine. In the story, the Centurion, a representative of the Roman Empire, the enemy in most Jewish minds, the same empire that would soon put our Savior to death in a violent and horrific way, he approaches Jesus and says, I have a servant who's more like a son, and he's dying. Jesus, anticipating the centurion's needs, gets up and says, I'll come to your house. The centurion says, no, I'm not worthy, but I'm a man under authority, and I have people under my authority. I know if if I tell them to do something, they're going to do it. I don't need to see it. So if you say he's healed, that's good enough for me. I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. Jesus says, look at this guy. I've rarely seen this kind of faith among the people of Israel. And of course, the servant is healed. And in the miniseries, rather than bask in the miracles, someone has to complain and say, look, we know we're the chosen people. This dude is a pagan. How can this pagan be worthier than a son or daughter of Israel? And in response, Jesus says, everybody, everybody is welcome at my father's table. This scene is a core memory in my faith story because I'll never forget the look on Robert Powell's face. His response wasn't a rebuke. It wasn't chastisement. It was excitement. He's saying, folks, this isn't just good news, it's great news. My heavenly father is inviting everyone to the table. Up until that point, my eight year old brain had always processed Christianity as some kind of exclusive club. You had to say so many our fathers and Hail Mary's and the correct sequence before you got in. But that's not what Robert Powell's Jesus was saying in this scene. It was comforting and exciting. I come back to this miniseries often in this story in particular because again and again, I find myself wishing desperately for the faith of of the centurion. It's mind-blowing. The courage of this person, a pagan, a member of the empire, to approach someone he's only ever heard about and request he heal his servant. And then to go further and say, I'm not worthy that you should enter my roof. His fellow soldiers must have been apoplectic with shock. And yet the follow-up scene is just as vital, just as important to me. It's a reminder that even if I don't have the faith of the centurion, I'm still welcome at God's table because everyone is welcome at God's table. My happiness in that moment always overwhelms my ability to wrap my head around that idea, and I'm always grateful for it. The centurion is saving my faith. Growing up, I always wanted to speak in front of my church, but as a Catholic, it always seemed the exclusive province of the priest, the deacon, the bishop, the nun or on occasion a special guest speaker. The lectern apparently didn't have a spot for me until I came here. I can't tell you what it means to me to get up here occasionally and share my faith story. Media is saving my faith, but so is Artisan. This church, you are saving my faith. Thank you. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.